This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to Colorado Hunting Hub. This podcast is designed to talk about everything hunting in Colorado. Whether you're a new hunter, old timer, or something else, Colorado Hunting Hub will have something for you. I'm your host, Clint Whitley, and let's get started. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Colorado Hunting Hub. We've got a cool series for you in this uh, next four episodes, and they are going to be region-specific. So we're going to start with the Northwest region and speak with some different CPW representatives to chat with us about those regions and a little bit about the herd outlook, the herd health, mainly around deer, elk, and ended up being a little antelope in there as well. And then chatted with them about license allocations, a little bit of that, uh, and then uh, how the wildlife is managed in each region. And I had the same question set up for all four interviews, but each one ended up being a little different. And even though I do not hunt in three of the units or regions, I should say, uh, I got something out of each one. So even though you may only hunt in the Northwest, I would consider checking out the Southwest, Southeast, and the Northeast region audio. So that's coming up. We've got a couple of biologists on the front range. And then on the Western slope, we've got the, uh, you'll have to listen to their titles, but uh, uh, Western, Northwest region, public they deal with the public and so kind of the the publication so sorry randy and joe got messed up your your titles but uh they're in the in the main portion of the podcast so so uh, great guys there and then uh, julie in the southeast uh, awesome there and when i'm recording this i hadn't quite 
done the northeast one yet either so some good stuff in all these and we're gonna pump them out all four at a time so i hope you enjoy and get something region specific or get motivated to try out something new maybe like the over-the-counter whitetail deer tags in the southeast that was something new and kind of cool so check that out but before we get to that we've got some giveaways that we're doing kind of crazy i've got 99 people registered for the onyx membership giveaway that i'm giving away 12 of them over the next well 12 11 months I've emailed six people and redrawn the uh, May winner over and over. Nobody replies. So check your email. I'm giving, trying to give these away and I can't. So hopefully that doesn't happen with the Vortex Binos. I posted on my Instagram that I pulled them out of the box. Sorry about that, but I had to. And I was quite impressed. I mean, I've got some, uh, I've got a bigger set of binos that I have the Vortex Razors, and then I have some Mavens, but quite impressed with these 10 by 42s and they'd be really nice to have a little smaller pair the, for, for shed hunting or hunting period or something a little lighter weight for backcountry. So they're they're a pretty sweet little set of binoculars. Only $279.99 is what the MSRP is on those. Uh, and I've only got 183 people registered. So I'd say that's not horrible odds. And uh, then we also have the XL Mountain Gear backpack. There's only 130 people registered for that thing. So we're not talking about like one in a thousand right now. Your odds are far better than many, many giveaways. Uh, and this pack is that you could potentially win is valued at 600 to 680 bucks. It all depends on which one you pick. They're going to fit it right to you. And I tell you what, this is a pack you need to get i have no this pack is not in my possession so uh it's gonna go right come right from xo so you get get that good fit so i wish hope hope maybe one of my hunting buddies wins it so uh (laughs) i know they're outfitted so other things we got going on uh appreciate i hunt colorado's facebook page if you haven't been over there uh make sure you like ask to be a member of that group a great group of guys the admin there and because uh, we almost chat daily on, on Messenger about different things. So check out what's going on there. Uh, nice to stay up to date on some good things and uh, be a part of a hunting community. Make sure you follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Colorado Hunting Hub. And got questions or comments, email me at clint.a.whitley at gmail.com. You can also find this podcast on Podbean is Colorado Hunting Hub, hub dot pond, podbean.com. You can find it on YouTube. You can find it on Apple Podcasts. You can find it wherever you're listening to right now. Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Play, wherever you want if you don't like the platform you're currently using. I currently do everything on Apple Podcasts. And there, you could leave me a little five-star review. That'd be helpful. And uh, subscribe. If you subscribe, you're going to get these right away and you don't have to... Uh, sometimes I forget about podcasts and... and certain ones, ones that I don't listen to continuously. So uh, it's nice to subscribe and they're there. So when I'm out of cell range or something, it was like, oh man, I ran out of what I normally listen to. I need to listen to this other one, like the XO Mountain Gear uh, pack or backcountry. There's this backcountry uh, something or other. So sorry uh, for messing that up. But 
they've got one, and so I subscribed. So I've got those episodes ready to go when I'm out of cell service and can't download them. So here we go. We've got the Northwest, the Southwest, the Southeast, and the Northeast region with CPW. Should be something for everybody out of these as long as you're in Colorado. So enjoy and let me know what you think. Randy, I want to thank you for coming on to our podcast and speaking to us about the Northwest region of Colorado. Uh, what's your role? Let's start there. Kind of what's your role with CPW? How long have you been there? How do you like to recreate? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Clint. First, uh, you know, thanks for thanks for thinking of us and having us on the on the podcast, having me on the podcast. It's uh, it's great to be here and absolutely love talking to to sportsmen um, and and talking about the opportunities that Northwest Colorado has to get out. Um, you know, no question apparently is easy and maybe it's just because I, I try to get as much detail out there as possible. So my role with Colorado Parks and Wildlife, I'm a public information officer. Um, so, so my job is to share information with the, the, the public to, to be a resource for the media and for the, the agency about communications. Um, originally I was a, I was a journalist. I was actually a radio news director in Grand Junction for many years. And so, you know, my background is more broadcast. Um, my, my educational background is in sociology. Uh, master's work was in a field called human dimensions of natural resources, which is actually kind of the study about how all of us kind of interact with all the things that a wildlife agency does, you know, how do we, how do we help people understand the environment? Um, what do people think about the, the environment that they're living in, that they're recreating in those kinds of things are what that human dimensions field is all about. So I'm kind of the people side of the agency. So, um, you know, that's, that's my job, both as an input to decision-making but more as a speaker to, you know, kind of broadcast information to the external publics. Um, you asked how long I've been with the agency. You know, I started with uh, the Colorado Division of Wildlife before the merger with parks. I started with DOW uh, right around 2003, um, which I guess would make 17 years with the agency, but I did take about a six-year hiatus. Um, from 03 to 2010, I was the Northwest Region Public Information Officer, same position I'm in right now, um, but then uh, promoted and was head of communications for uh, the entire agency at the time of the merger with state parks. So I headed communications for Colorado Parks and Wildlife for the first few years, helped get things merged, and then my wife and I got a little bit crazy and decided to do something most people wait for retirement to do. And we, uh, we decided we wanted to, to live fun and live an adventure before we got too old to enjoy it. So we spent uh, six years in Hawaii from 2014 up until February of this year uh, working in, and living in Hawaii. So very different environment and all of those things. Um, but as my parents have gotten older, they live here in Western Colorado, um, it was time to come home. 
And so was very pleased that my old position actually came available and jumped right in. So um, I haven't been back that long, only a few months, got back just in time for, oh, I don't know, COVID and, you know, lots of other stuff. So um, as far as recreation, uh, my wife and I are kind of water people. We like to boat and fish and, and get out on the water. Uh, maybe that was the draw of Hawaii. And, uh, you know, so we love, still love doing that stuff in Western Colorado. That's awesome. I think, uh, your background for sure is pretty perfect for, for your role. And cause I've heard from CPW representatives, you spend time with wildlife and working with wildlife, you spend time with habitat, but a whole nother 30 year job is working with people and dealing with, with that whole thing and pleasing working. You're not going to please everybody. And that's not the point, but to, to, to be not creating too many waves and however <laughs> you have to work with people. And I, that's not, I have no sociology <laughs> education whatsoever. <laughs> uh, but I'm a teacher. I understand that part <laughs> and, it, and some similar things there, but I'm sure we'll get to at some point how Northwest has zero elk, zero deer, hunting's horrible, don't come here kind of thing, because that's where I hunt as well. <laughs> just <laughs> uh, just kidding. I think anybody who has ever read a, a magazine knows there's some pretty amazing units in this in that region. And also, I think what what you're you're bringing to this podcast, I think, is very in line with the purpose of this podcast, and that's to that's to help educate. I'm an educator and I'm doing it for free here uh, because I enjoy it. And this is in line with helping that streamline the, the learning that it, that comes with coming to Colorado as a resident, non-resident, whoever to come and hunt here. And there's definitely a learning curve. So I think this is one of those steps we can take and bringing in experts like yourself to, to share about a specific region, uh, because those there's so many new people that I that I chat with, see comments on that are, I'm. What do you know about this area? What do you know about this area? And if we had four podcasts to listen to about each region, I think that could give someone a, a really good start. So thank you for your time there. And yeah, the place I want to the place I want to start is what uh, what how does your region what does it look like? Can you give us a Kind of an understanding of sure. just so, the, the the boundaries, trophy units, over the counter units. What's it comprised of? Sure. So the the Northwest region itself um, is probably the, the the largest unit or you know largest region in the state, but that may not be true. Um, just on a miles basis, I think uh, southeast is is maybe miles wise a bit bigger, um, but a lot of their miles are flat, you know, straight line stuff. Ours are you got to go around, you know, the river and the mountain and and all of that stuff. So it takes longer to get places. So the Northwest region is is kind of if you want to talk about maybe the the four corners of it, so people kind of understand it. Um, if you were to take the state of Colorado and run a line down the continental divide from north to south, that's the, 
the eastern boundary of the northwest region. So um, all the way up to, you know, Silverthorne area and just above there along Interstate 70, and just a little bit south of I-70. Um, the, the western edge is the, the Colorado-Utah border. Uh, my office, our regional headquarters, is based in Grand Junction. Um, so basically kind of all of that I-70, but you get to throw in, um, you know, kind of Pitkin County, parts of the Grand Mesa, uh, and some of those areas. So Aspen is in the Northwest region. It's just geographically easier to reach from here than to try to get there from, from anywhere else. Um, and then we go all the way up into, into some of the, some of the most amazing big game lands, probably in the United States. When we talk about, uh, you know, the the areas around Craig, Meeker, um, and some of that country, whether that's the, you know, the Bears Ears herd um, or into the White River. Um, so just some amazing, amazing country in, in all of Northwest Colorado. You asked about, you know, trophy units, over-the-counter units. The answer is yes, all of the above. Um, you know, some amazing amazing trophy elk units in the northwest corner of the state. There are also, though, um, you know, really great opportunity units where uh, you can you can walk in and get an over-the-counter uh, bull tag and, and go hunt elk. For deer, there's, you know, book cliff units that are um, spectacular uh, if you're looking for big bucks, but there's also... Um, you know, plenty of units that are um, more accessible and, uh, you know, easier to get tags in. So we got a little bit of everything, depending on what kind of what kind of hunter you are, how long you've been at it, preference points, all of that, all of that kind of stuff. A little bit of everything in Northwest. One thing I really like about this area, I live near Silt, and which is just west of Glenwood Springs. And we're right in this kind of corner or tri kind of habitat area where you've got the high desert and more of the, the Rhone plateau to the North and, and the flat tops not far away. And so depending on what I'm feeling like, I can go recreate in some different type of terrain every season, whether I wanted to go chase elk in a, in a, in some, in thick, dense timber, or if I wanted to go chase them out in the sage, it's, uh, it's different. It's so different. And I love that part that, is, that we have such different terrain and I got to spend some time North West, uh, not long ago doing some shed hunting a little further Northwest. And boy, was that cool. I've never really been into some of those trophy units and they're just neat, neat habitat. And I could, I didn't see many elk. I saw some, uh, but the, amount of rubs I saw where these trees were torn apart and the six, seven, eight, eight foot high into the trees. So where those trees were torn apart, it was unreal. I couldn't believe it. The number of, uh, amount of rutting activity we saw left over, which was really, really neat. The next thing I wanted to bring up was a public announcement that, We've been getting emails on around state public trust lands, and it looks like CPW has a goal of opening up a million acres 
and there was a big step towards that just recently. Can you speak to that in regards to the Northwest region? Yeah, you know, I think there's a, there's a lot of people out there. They say, hey, you know, the, the, the there needs to be more done for public access, public access, public access, and it's a it's a mantra we have heard for for a long time. Colorado Parks and Wildlife and the the Parks and Wildlife Commission certainly trying to address that because it is a challenge. You know, there's so much public land, but there's some there's some significant challenges getting to it for people. Um, so. We've been, you know, kind of moving over the last couple of years to try to really address the the public land and public access issue. So uh, the the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission has a, a public access program. That program, as you said, you know, there's a goal out there to, to try to hit that one million acres. Uh, the program originally was kicked off and, and had some some lands in northwest Colorado Last year, um, there was a, an effort to get a lot of those kind of eastern plains lands added in there, um, helping with things like, you know, waterfowl hunting, turkey hunting, um, and, and some, some deer opportunity out on the plains. Um, but this year, back to, back to Northwest again, a big chunk, um, there were 27,000 acres of state trust lands added in this year in Northwest Colorado. Um, so lots of, lots of other spaces and places for people to, to get out and big game hunt. Uh, and all of those are on the website if people uh, go to cpw.state.co.us, you can find those, those public access program lands and, and where those are located. And cruising around on my OnX, I see a b- bunch of the purple, which is the state trust lands. Is that what they're talking about here? And you see some that are labeled no public access. How how do we tell exactly the difference and which ones are accessible now? It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. As you're as you're moving around through those, what's happening is those will be changing and 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 as that access is, you know, we've got the agreement in place. Now our field folks have to go and and take that 27,000 acres and go, okay, well, you know, 600 is here and what does it look like and what kind of access is, is really available and how do we, how do we put it out to people and are there specific restrictions on this property? Are there other uses of the property? So all of the online data is still being um, kind of massaged and, and updated. Um, but by the time we get to the big game seasons, we should have it all lined out for folks and, and certainly in hopes of, of getting it there, you know, even a couple months out so people can scout and do those things. Great. So then we'll be able to find that on that, that site you just mentioned. That would be me saying, gosh, I hope so. Yes. <laughs> that, that is the intent. <laughs> Glenn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I've looked at so much of that state trust land in, in the Northwest region and, and, 
you got to go to the brochure and and read through it there. But I know the online gets a little more updated more frequently than the one time a year publication. So that might be a better option. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating to, you know, to, to see people that, that hunt because there's all kinds, you know, and, and, and one of the biggest things that I don't think people that don't hunt, I, I don't think they understand is that, that, that it actually is not that one week a year where, you know, you get to go out and, and, and chase deer and elk around at least not for the successful hunter. I mean, you've got to do a lot of on the ground work to, to make sure, you know, you know, where you're going, where you're, where you're hunting, what you're hunting, what the regulations are and all of those things. And we're doing everything we can to make that as easy as possible and to make that a resource. And that's the great thing about, you know, certainly podcasts like yours is just another ability to reach out and, and help people understand. Oh my gosh, you're you're dead on with that. My wife tells me uh, to quit talking about hunting so much, and I think sometimes she tells me to quit thinking about <laughs> hunting so much because that is the truth. I've already shot my bow today. Yesterday I went on a little turkey hunt and trying to get my legs still in good condition. Um purchasing gear that I might need or getting a new cooking thing that helps me cook and mess with the meat that I get in a different way. My gosh. Yes. Year round for sure. <laughs> There's no, there is a hunting season, but my think my wife's learning that it just doesn't go away ever for people like me. It, I, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm the most style. successful. Oh yeah, Absolutely. Uh, it, I'm, I'm yeah. wrapping everything around and here I am starting a hunting pop podcast just because I love <laughs> talking about it some more. So yeah, you're dead on with that. Moving on with, uh, another question. The, you already spoke to it a little bit about some of the opportunity and how there is some units in there that if you start applying now, you'll still never get it <laughs> most likely. Uh, and other ones where we can have zero preference points and get a tag next year. So that's kind of the the balance between maybe a quality experience. And, and I don't like saying that because you can still have quality experience on over-the-counter units. Quality versus opportunity. And how does the Northwest kind of try and balance those those things out? You know, it, it, it's an interesting question because I think – when we look at a unit, we're really looking not at the unit itself, but more about the the management of the population of of critters that we're talking about. So, you know, when you talk about quality units and things, we really are managing to accomplish kind of both goals, that quality and the opportunity in, in most units. I mean, if you, if you think about it, you know, even in a unit that is a tremendous trophy unit, you still have to manage does and cows. Um, right. Chronic wasting disease, for example, we may have, and this is, this is really the interesting stuff that people are going to start to experience. Take a look at, you know, hunters say, gee, I want a quality, 
I want a quality buck hunt. You know, I'm, I'm going to go out deer hunt and I want a quality buck hunt. And so they're going to say, oh, well, that's, you know, this unit, that unit, you know, gee, if you can get a buck license over in 30 or 21. And, and the challenge of that is as we look at things like chronic wasting disease, we're trying to manage populations for things like CWD. Well, it's, it's older bucks that tend to be most affected by chronic wasting disease. So if we go into a unit and say, wait, chronic wasting disease is over a threshold in this particular unit, and we need to address that, oftentimes it can change the entire dynamic of what those, those hunts or those units could look like. So we're, you know, we're aware of that balance. Let me give you a better example. Um, there is a, a bit of a balance, but go back to, um, I don't know, go back to a few, gosh, 2013. And you look at things like uh, the Gunnison Basin winter that was, you know, horrible. I think it was 2013. It was bad. 2000, you know, nine wasn't yeah, pretty. Yeah, yeah. And there were years where, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're out feeding deer, you know, because there's just nothing and there's mountains of snow. Those units, people are like, oh, that's quality, you know, quality buck hunts, quality units. But Mother Nature can change that public kind of perception of those units over time. So I think we're 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 trying to create opportunities for everybody and yeah we manage some units where we say you know what that's a quality unit and we have certain management goals up there but at the same time we're really managing for biology always you know and 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 quality is is more of a a term that i think hunters put on the units than we do Right. Yeah. Uh, that's a bigger picture thing that I think a lot of us hunters just forget about. And I, I hear, hear comp, uh, hunters complain about Colorado Parks and Wildlife. You don't know what you're doing. Well, you, CPW employees are the ones with the degrees in the biology and understanding what these herds are about and, and how they're doing and tracking them and paying attention to them. So, as hunters, sometimes we, well, we Clint, lose sight you, of that. You, yeah, you, you, you've you hit something important there. You know, people think, oh, yeah, you're just, you know, um, the game warden's just a dude with a badge out there enforcing law. Um, but those guys that are, that are wildlife managers, district wildlife managers for Colorado Parks and Wildlife are hired into our agency. They have degrees in biology. Um, right. You know, so they're not just some guy that, you know, we throw a badge on and go, hey, go, go enforce this stuff. They manage those populations. They make those decisions um, and help the agency make make more of those decisions. You know, it's it's really hard to say, hey, Colorado Parks and Wildlife doesn't know what it's doing. When we have you know, the, the most robust elk population, the most, you know, 
the, the, the highest number argument. of hunters on the ground. I mean, you know, if we didn't know what we were doing, um, I think the picture would be very, very, very different. So throughout the, the history of the agency, um, I think, you know, you could say Colorado Parks and Wildlife has done a, a very good job. Doesn't mean we don't screw it up. I get it. But, yeah. you know, the, there, there's a bunch of biologists in this agency and everybody's working to make sure that the, the information that, the, the, that we provide and the, the management that we provide is, is as good as it can be. Right. And you could almost take it to an elementary level here of uh, kind of a connection to raising a kid. I may turn my TV off in front of my kid for a sec and he gets upset with me. But why am I turning it off? I'm turning it off till he does something more with his creativity and playing and learning than than rotting his brain in front of a TV. And we may not like that initially, but it has longer, further, bigger picture effects that we may not understand because we didn't go to school for some of that. I have a biology degree, but still, I'm not in the in the field of managing wildlife and i'm not i'm learning all the time about how how elk and deer move around and use a use the landscape and what interrupts how development interrupts them and, and, and all those sorts of things so yeah there's there's a level of trust that i think hunters need need to have with uh with the management of that and realize yeah that reduction in uh, in tags didn't allow you to get a cow tag this year but in the long run those herds may be improved over the next 10 years. You're looking 10 years, not one year approach. So I get that. And it's important, I think, for us to be reminded of that. The next thought I had wanted to ask you was what's the overall health and outlook of, let's stick to maybe just the deer and elk herds in the northwest region maybe a little antelope I, i'm gonna draw a good antelope tag this year so i'd love to hear some of that because <laughs> you you mentioned uh that how some of those those big winners are are pretty detrimental and i i it just seems like antelope really are susceptible to bad winners where they could just have some pretty big die-offs and i don't think this year's winter was too terrible on the antelope uh and I'm hoping to to find some find a nice quality uh, antelope out there. But speaking about the pronghorn elk, deer, kind of what's the health and outlook looking like? Well, the the you know the, this is a there's good news and bad news kind of answer. Um, the good news is the the outlook's pretty good. Um, the, the bad news is that's because maybe we take a look at the outlook and compare it to some challenges that some of the other parts of the state are facing. The biggest thing is deer um, really are being impacted by chronic wasting disease and maybe some even some other factors because interestingly enough, and, and hopefully you'll get a chance to talk to some of the folks in the Southwest region, but the Southwest hasn't been hit by chronic wasting disease, yet they are seeing the fawn doe ratios that are such a key indicator of herd health. They're seeing those fawn doe ratios drop. Um, so deer is a challenge. Northwest 
we've stayed fairly good to the point that we're actually reducing some license numbers. And people say, well, wait, if health is good, why are you you're reducing numbers? It's it's it feels a little backwards. But we get those 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 herds to you know to certain populations, and then you're no longer trying to drive down the population, you're trying to sustain the population. And that requires less hunting pressure. So um, in some areas, deer are doing very, very well, not enough that they've climbed above objectives and need um, additional hunting pressure, but they're, they're at really very stable levels. So that's, that's good news. Chronic wasting disease is, is obviously a factor. And for deer, we've got to manage uh, for that. We're learning more about it. We're one of the leading uh, researchers in the field of chronic wasting disease in the United States. Um, and, you know, we continue to do a, a whole bunch of, of research on, on maybe ways to get ahead of it. Um, elk are less affected, but still affected. Um, but the elk population in Northwest Colorado is pretty darn healthy. And just cause you asked, um, I'll tell you this on pronghorn, um, they do fairly well. We did have a, a slight reduction in Northwest uh, in the number of pronghorn licenses available. Um, but some of that's due to just some management of a, of a population, a, a smaller population that we had to, to, to have a bigger impact with. So, um, you know, the herds are okay. The uh, moose are doing well. Um, and those things too. So, um, population wise overall deer elk, they're doing pretty well in Northwest. That's good to hear. Good to hear. And it seems like with, with chronic wasting disease that it blew up. I can't say how long ago, let's say oh, mid to mid to late two thousands. And I was in Western South Dakota mm-hmm. at that time where I did a lot of hunting and there's a good hot spot there with CWD. And we, I, I've harvested an animal with CWD and, uh, that was a interesting thing because more than one of us harvested and my family harvested one with CWD and it kind of seemed like it blew up at that time as a big concern. And then it seemed to back off a little bit and now it seems to be back with some more vengeance. Is that, is that kind of seem right? Or is that just me being, (laughs) you know, it's, it's, I'll, t- I'll tell you something that, that people should be watching. Let's, let's talk about disease for a second. If you, if you really pay attention, um, and, and maybe we can talk about crime too, because crime matters here. Uh, like I said, I'm a sociologist. So you go back to the, the 1980s, you know, and everybody said, oh, crime is getting worse every year, violent crime rising, rising, rising. In the 90s, the FBI actually changed the definition of a bunch of things that qualify as crime. And so then the stats started to change. We see crime decreasing. Additionally, you know, people get older, they're not as good at being a criminal anymore. You know, when you're 80, you can't go out and strong arm rob somebody. So there's all these other factors that play into it. You talk about disease and right now everybody's really up to speed on COVID. 
and we go, wow, you know, the United States has more COVID cases than anywhere else. And yet, you know, we're pretty locked down. And, 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 and then there's this discussion, and I won't get into politics, but there's this discussion of, okay, is that about the fact that we're just testing more? We test more, so we see more. Now take that all over to chronic wasting disease, and, and, and there's a whole lot of implications. And I think what you're seeing is some of that, you know, as the agencies maybe have a little more money and can devote more money to research, they, they start researching more, they start testing more. Um, last year, we did a lot of required testing in units where we weren't sure if there was CWD, but to monitor, we wanted to require people to have heads tested. So a lot of people were like, well, I've never turned in my head and now I have to in, in this unit. And so, you know, is chronic wasting disease on the rise or is testing on the rise? Um, and there's factors of both. So really what you've seen with chronic wasting disease, and, and it's a serious, serious issue, but you really have to kind of dive into, you know, what, what's really happening. And that's where the biology becomes so important. Because it's easy to sit back and see a news story and see, you know, hey, 2020, here's the status of chronic wasting disease without understanding all that backstory. This is a great time to explain why your ninth grade science class was important. <laughs> and when you learned about the scientific <laughs> method and all the variables and I, I I may have a student or two listening. I don't know. I don't know why they'd want to listen to me again. But uh, they uh, uh, in, in when you learn about scientific method, you learned about variables and what story you want to tell with the data you're collecting. And we forget sometimes that that data is not constant. The the or the data can be constant, but the the way things show up as we progress in society, that's going to change. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's a great connection with the testing there to make sense on that with the, with the disease. So, um, yeah, that made me just think of my old biology class that I used to teach and, and running through the scientific method and looking at variables and how you're proving something versus not proving something. And, and, uh, yeah, that was a cool, cool connection. So I've explained, the North American model of wildlife conservation and back in episode eight, when we kind of looked at some of the new trapping ban things that were citizen petition that was coming around, which obviously suddenly is gone. Uh, but can you enlighten us on how CPW uses that model in the work that they do? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great, it's a great question about the North American model because um, we use it extensively in, um, in the day-to-day -day without even really being aware of it. You know, so many of our people are, are raised in the ethic of the North American model. Um, they grow up, you know, so many of our guys and, and gals out there that are working in this field, you know, are, are, are natives to Colorado and they grow up and they go, yeah, I want to work for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. And, so, you know, they kind of grow up in it, but it's, it's key in Colorado early May as the, the Parks and Wildlife Commission met, they actually had a presentation 
um, from from one of the people that, that wrote a, a very large report on the North American model, where it's headed. Um, and they had a presentation at the commission meeting to help the, the, the wildlife, parks and wildlife commissioners understand it. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's woven into the fabric of what we do. And it, it lays the ethical groundwork for how we try even to, to regulate things like, like hunting. You know, people see, people see regulations and they go, oh, well, that's, that's stupid. Why do we have that? You know, why am I required? I, I want to go out and hunt. I, I, I wait 20 years to, to hunt a trophy animal in a unit. I go out. I want to hunt that trophy animal. The most important thing to me in, in waiting for that is I want that, you know, I want the six by. Uh, I want the, you know, I want the massive elk. But why, so why do I have to, you know, why do I have to prepare all the meat for human consumption? Why is that a regulation? And that regulation exists to get back to, you know, kind of that ethic of the North American model of wildlife. You don't go out and, and kill things and waste them. And so the North American model underlies everything we do. Now, will the North American model change? Um, because I think the public's changing, and there's a lot of interesting questions about that. Um, you know, and, and, and who knows the future? But the North American model of, of wildlife conservation, sportsmen pay um, to support wildlife conservation and, and have for many, 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 many years. And so it, it really underlies everything that the, the agency does. There's people that want to change it. There's people that, that prefer the, you know, kind of the, the more the king's deer concept of wildlife belongs to all people and, and you know, the government should regulate it and, and decide who gets to do what and, and some of that. And that's not really the model that, that, that underlies what we do. It's a different kind of management. I think if people did a little research, let's say hunters, hunters did a little research on how European countries manage their wildlife, we'd have a greater appreciation for sure. And that we have this public resource to, to enjoy. So that's an important thing to remember. A uh, definitely misinterpreted conversation is around exactly how these license numbers are determined. And I know there's a lot of layers to it, but there's can, there can be some changing numbers. And you've, you've alluded to, say, the, one of the deer herds or one of the units, how there was a reduction in some numbers. But can you give a couple more examples or understanding for hunters while you have our ear as to how some of those numbers and, and big changes are determined? Sure, absolutely. And it it's, you know, it, it's such a science-based kind of process on our end that, that then converts into a data mountain that then has to be distilled out to the, the hunter on the ground and every level of hunter from experienced guys that are way into the data 
to a brand new, you know, kid that that just got his first hunting rifle, just got his hunter safety card and is ready to, you know, hunt hunt elk for the first time. And and you got to be able to to kind of communicate all of that. So the basis that we use for management of, of populations um, is really the herd management plan. So herd management planning means we take a look at a population of deer or elk. Um, let's say the, you know, the White River elk herd, largest elk herd in North America for, for most of the, the past 30 years. The White River elk herd is, and, and in, in insider baseball terms, is what we call a DAU, a data analysis unit. So that's a large herd area. The White River elk herd is made up of seven game management units, 12, 23, 24, 25, 26, 33, and 34. So these game management units make up the White River elk herd. But we don't look at it on a game management unit basis. Game management units are, are kind of how we get the, the harvest out there. But a, a larger herd area is where does that herd spend most of its life? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So when we're looking at it, we're looking at winter range, summer range, where are they calving, where are they, you know, doing all of these other things. And that becomes that, that data analysis unit, that herd management area that, that we're looking at. So, you know, as you mentioned, Clint, going out shed hunting and not seeing any elk. And, and I go, okay, well, maybe. In, you know, summer when Clint goes out and or spring and shed hunts, he's in basically if he's if he's shed hunting good areas, he's, he's out in winter range where they are when those those antlers drop. But that doesn't mean that's where they are in the spring, in the summer. They're back up, you know, kind of get moving into that higher, higher elevation stuff. And so you know, people need to understand that these, these critters are moving around. We don't set these numbers by going out and physically going through every acre of land in Northwest Colorado, not achievable, not possible, not going to happen. And a whole lot of private land too. So we will fly these herds. They, uh, you know, fly along, they, they, they analyze the content of the animals they're seeing on the ground. Is it a, is it a, a, a calf? Is it a, a cow? Is it a, a bull? You know, all of these different factors. They pump all of that information into a model. So we're basically modeling the herd. And based on that habitat, that number of animals that we were able to model, what does that extrapolate out to? for a population. 
So it's, it's a bit of science and a whole lot of art. And we also, you know what, we're learning about hunter numbers and, and how to set license numbers and things sometimes at the gas station. When you, when you pull in and the guy goes, oh, hey, you work for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. I was just out in, you know, GMU, da-da-da, and look what I got. And, and then there's an opportunity to go, wow, okay, that's a good size buck, you know. And, and over time we go, hey, I'm seeing a lot, of, a lot of good harvest. And those kinds of things can also factor into some of the, the ways that we set license numbers. So it's science. It's art, it's history, um, and in the end, you just you, you hope it works out right. Um, but it's not an uneducated guess, right? Yeah, you're dealing with so many <laughs> layers and things that it's not like you can go count every single elk. Right? Got yeah, to, we we that's going we through. actually we count the legs and divide by four. So that's our <laughs> methodology. And other than that, you know. <laughs> yeah. So the the 2020 to 2025 big game structures just released recently. What's in that that's good for the Northwest region? So probably the biggest changes um, is you know, this year as people were putting in for licenses, you see primary draw and then a secondary draw, which is kind of replacing that old concept of a leftover draw, lots of preference and secondary draw for youth. So there's a, there's a real effort to make sure that young people are getting licenses. Um, and, and that was part of that, that kind of that big game season structure process. Changes in the way that people can hunt bear, um, you know, adding a bear license is now kind of an unlimited thing. Um, there's, there've been changes uh, in uh, things like moose, you know, people wait a long, long time to get a moose tag and, and then they, they want to be able to go out and, and, and get the, get the moose. And so, you know, you can now extend those across seasons. So if you draw an either sex or a bull moose tag, you can, as long as you're using the right equipment, hunt it in multiple seasons. You can go out with archery equipment during archery season. You can go out with muzzleloader equipment during muzzleloader season. So, um, you know, or, or rifle in the rifle season. So giving people that are waiting that longer period of time, more options, um, and also helping kind of clean up the the harvest and and you know we set a, a license number and then a lot of people don't harvest by giving them more opportunity to do that they're going to do what that license is for um, that license we don't issue licenses to just sell licenses we issue license because we have an understanding that x percentage of those people that go out with that specific kind of license are going to harvest an animal and help us reach our population targets so, um, you know, sometimes you want to increase people's, people's take. We, and, and so we're better at knowing what a license is going to result in. So some of the stuff that was done in, in the big game season structure is really about allowing us to tighten up um, 
those those harvest estimates and understand them a little better headed in when we're setting license numbers, really knowing what that's going to result in in terms of harvest. Do you, so one of those things that I saw in there was some of the changes to some season dates and the, uh, I, I couldn't dive too far into it because I haven't looked at it that closely, but heard some things around <laughs> having those third and fourth season deer tags being a little later. So we're hitting some of that more rut time. And some folks are concerned about wiping out a big chunk of the deer herd, like in the Gunnison Gunnison area or, or something like that because of having rutting big, huge rutting dumb bucks come out in the middle of the open, in the middle of the day. And, and, uh, be more likely to be harvested. So I've heard that complaint. Is there anything? Yeah, no, you know, go back to something, go back to something we talked about earlier already, which is when you're managing for chronic wasting disease, you, you sometimes need to take bucks out of the system because that tends to be the best way to manage for that, for that disease. So in some units, where chronic wasting disease numbers might get high or you're trying to prevent spread, um, increasing buck harvest is, a, is, is maybe a good management option. Now, I don't know about the Gunnison units, but let's talk about what the goal is. You know, we get so many people, they come in third, fourth season, they go out, they, they tromp around out there and they go, well, there's no animals out here. Now, we know as managers, boy... <laughs> A lot of those deer are held up on, you know, this particular island of private land in the middle there. And wouldn't it be great if we could actually do what we're supposed to do and harvest those deer? And so by spreading out the seasons a little bit and creating a longer rest period for those deer in between the seasons, you take that pressure off. And you are able to, to then get those deer to move around and they move out to, to places where they should be. And that's helpful. So because we can get the, get the harvest on them that we need to achieve. So sometimes people look at these changes, they go, well, that inconveniences me or that scares me, but they, they didn't really dive all the way through it. Does it mean we're right in all of this? No. But we will monitor the the results and the impacts. And if we need to back it off, we will. That's why we go through this process of five five year season structures is, you know, sometimes we have to be innovative. We have to try things. And, you know, we're we're concerned about all the the things other people are concerned about is, oh, gee, what is this going to cause? And is this going to be a problem? And yeah, maybe it will cause that. But our hope is that we'll get to this other target. We'll get to this other thing. And sometimes, like I said, there's a bit of art. You just got to put it out there and see what happens on the ground. We monitor it very closely and we can change it. If we see the the negatives coming to light, well, we look at it and we go, okay, let's adjust the science. So let's adjust the art too and, and go back and change it. So we don't, we don't claim to know everything, but there's a whole lot of factors that go into all these decision-making ideas, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like we said, there's so many folds to it 
that I, I, to, I, I just started that question with, I've heard, I've heard of the complaining, but I've, I've never really dived into it to look for a reason on that. So that's good stuff. <laughs> I just learned something really cool there on the thinking and the understanding of that. That makes a lot of sense. It makes sense. And, and that's the, the stuff that is not the obvious that the average hunter is going to be thinking about all those little folds. Not only are you managing your, the uh, disease, but managing that herd on top of that in a, just a numbers fashion as well. So really interesting to, to think of, about the, the amount of thought and discussion that went around that. And like you said, may not be the end all silver bullet, but it could, uh, could potentially do something <laughs> that, that really does some good things for the herd. So that makes sense. Yeah. I kind of applaud CPW for that right there. That's to, in that innovative thinking. That's, that's some good stuff. So Excellent. hopefully that, that gets out to listeners and, and get an understanding. So the next publication that came out that I saw recently was the 2020 big game winter range migration corridor report. Is there, I, I flipped through it. I'm a science minded guy. I just haven't spent time digging into it. So I like, I like the stats. I like numbers. I haven't dug into it quite as much as I'd like to yet, but is there anything in there helpful for Northwest region hunters that that's sticks out? You know, and, and I, I have looked through it and I, I have dug through a lot of the numbers and cause I'm an, I'm, you know, even though it's a sociology degree, I'm a numbers guy. I like, you know, I, I like really understanding what's going on. And I can tell you there's a lot in there. But for most people, you know, the most important thing to know, we're paying attention. We're monitoring these things. You know, winter range is critical and important. If you think about it, you know, if the deer, if the deer could live up in the White River, up on top of the flat tops all year long, everything would be okay. You know, there's plenty of land up there, but they can't. And so the snow hits and they've all got to come down and they come down into the valleys where the rivers and the roads are and the towns are. You know, we built our towns where we built our towns because we were wanted to be protected from the, the, the brutal winters of Colorado. So all our communities are built in, in these river valleys. Well, when you talk about winter wildlife, now we're talking about much less land. And so those winter winter areas, those winter corridors, migration corridors, the, the winter range areas, they, it's so critical that animals can move around and make it to the different areas that they need at different times of year. The coolest thing, I mean, you know, go take a drive, go up Highway 9, head out of Silverthorne and and, and drive up to Kremling. And as you're driving along on Highway 9, you'll see there's there's two overpasses and a, and a series of, I, I believe, nine crossings that go under the highway for, for animals, for wildlife. Wildlife crossings along Highway 9. Collisions with vehicles have been reduced 90% along Highway 9. That's and so if you go, well, why does a, you know, why does a corridor matter? 
it doesn't just matter for the wildlife. It matters for everybody that pays for car insurance and, and likes animals and, and, you know, whatever. So I think the big thing, Clint, we're watching all this. We're, we're trying to do what we can to protect all of these, these necessary parts of, of Colorado's big game populations. And I know those, those overpasses, underpasses, they, they are expensive to put in. And I, I mentioned that to a rancher in Southwest South Dakota, cause I was visiting there not long ago. And I, I grew up hunting that area on a big old 15,000 acre ranch and there's deer everywhere, mule deer, whitetail. It was a really, really great place to hunt and had really good numbers. Mountain lions came in we started a season in 2005 and that was kind of one of the big blame blames for reducing or the reduction in the deer herds. But they also made highway 79 a two, a four lane highway. And suddenly now the rancher said, there's deer getting killed on that every day. <laughs> and the impacts that that has had on that herd, the deer in that area is, is unreal. It's not a place to a destination place for me anymore to to go hunting and still like to go and visit friends there but the the impact those road collisions have had on the whitetail and the mule deer and in that that corner of the state's kind of crazy so it's funny you mentioned that that wintering range because lyle mentioned the same thing in the last episode where he talked about that exact same place and the amount of wildlife that are spending time in that that area and interesting to to hear a, a different side to or a different piece of that that important part of habitat. Uh, another thing I forgot to ask was around chronic uh, wasting disease, and we noticed with the the animals that we were hunting and the ones that had been positively diagnosed with chronic wastings, it seemed to be maybe a little little older. A little more mature. The big, they seem to be having more of the chronic wasting disease, and maybe if I'm if that's just a, a guess or if that has any truth to it, let me know. But the I wonder too if having that later season and allowing for a more rut hunt with those third late third late four seasons and trying to harvest a few more of those mature bucks could could be a positive thing for that. I don't know. Maybe I'm just throwing out a guess, a hypothesis, but uh, maybe that's a something that could help. I don't know. Well, certainly we would we would hope so. I guess Clint would be the. Yeah. You know, we'll find out. We'll see what those what those implications are, and you know, we can tune that up or down as needed. Um, but that's certainly part of the equation when it comes to chronic wasting disease. Like anything, the longer you're around, the more you're going to be exposed to stuff. We know that chronic wasting disease can persist in soils over time. So, you know, the longer those deers are, or those deer are around that, 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 you know, vector, the more chance they have of getting it. So the older ones are going to be more susceptible potentially to it. So, and their health maybe, um, you know, maybe isn't what the younger ones are. They're also devoting more energy to, to breeding and to, to growing antlers. And, you know, so there's all kinds of things that are going on, but 
um, yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting a, to kind of sit back and watch. Yeah. Similar to a biomagnification or bioaccumulation piece too, mm-hmm. to, to that just being around more. And yeah, that makes sense. So I got, I got one more question. I didn't exactly give you a heads up on this question. So, <laughs> and I don't want to dive into the nasty parts of it, but I just, just, I thought of it later and that's Northwest region is most likely going to be the C first region to deal with wolves. And I don't want to dive into the politics of that because I have no interest in that, but do you foresee the wolves doing, uh, having some impact on the deer or the moose population? Cause I recently spoke with a, a predator biologist, Northwest Wyoming, uh, just about some other things I was doing for work, but he had said that the elk would be fine, but maybe the moose would, would struggle a little bit or what, can you speak to that? You know, it, it, it's interesting and I won't dive into the politics either because Colorado parks and wildlife, we don't really have a, a position on the upcoming ballot initiative. Um, you know, our job is to, to provide information where we can. We are certainly, the biologists are certainly monitoring what has happened with wolves in other states. So we're looking at elk, deer, populations, Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, and trying to understand what potential implications that, and you know, how does that translate to Colorado? And it's just really, really, really hard to answer because none of those places have what we have in Colorado. And that's, you know, the, the, the sheer human population and the, the, the mass of outdoor recreation. So what are the implications? Uh, We don't really have that answer. We know there will be, be negative impacts. We know there could be positive impacts. We, what we don't know is, okay, now how's that all going to look? Because there's not a lot of science about how that's going to look when you're talking about, you know, 6 million plus people on the ground in Colorado. Um, certainly our moose population is doing very well in Colorado, has been growing and thriving. And so, you know, um, we'll know, um, but we won't know yeah. till we know. And, and we can't, you know, we can't guess. Um, it's just going to kind of unfold as it unfolds if the voters choose to go that way. Either way, there will be wolves. There are already wolves in Colorado. There's a pack of wolves in Northwest Colorado that we have verified. Um, it's in the kind of the Northwest corner of the state, about six animals, um, at least that we've seen. Um, and they kind of continue to persist and, and roam around. Um, so we know wolves will make their way to Colorado, um, regardless of what the voters decide. If the voters decide in, in November to bring wolves in, then we'll, we'll certainly cross that bridge and, and begin to take a look at what that involves. Yeah. I apologize for asking that question because I can know that. I know wolves could be a little bit of that exhausting topic and and something that has got a lot of unknowns well, behind it's, it. It's but. on everybody's mind. Yeah, it's yeah. on everybody's mind. So not a not a problem. It's it's a question that I answer at the grocery store five times a day. 
So <laughs> might as well answer it on a podcast and see if we can help people understand it. We just don't have, yeah. you know, I'd love to give you a good answer. There isn't one. Um, right. You know, I can tell you what wolves have, you know, done in Idaho, or I can tell you what wolves have done in Montana. Um, but in the long run, what are wolves going to do in Colorado? Well, we're going to figure that out because we'll be, we'll be here watching and, and doing yeah. what we can as, as managers. Yeah. And you mentioned something too, that just gets me excited about the moose populations. And that was one thing when I moved here in 2012 is I told my wife, go find a job in a mountainous state somewhere where we, I can go hunt something besides deer. And I was excited about the elk and mm -hmm. uh, potential of a mountain goat, which I got last year, which was really cool. And never even really thought of a moose. Uh, that just didn't really cross my mind as something that, that I'd ever really see or see many of. But my gosh, I can take a half hour drive down the, my road right now uh, towards Colburn and uh, northwest of Glenwood Springs. And if I'm up there early enough in the morning, I have a decent chance of finding a moose. And that's just one, a really cool thing to be able to see is seeing moose in different terrain. Well, and, and another yeah, that's example. one of the places where it is amazing. We, uh, 2004, um, went to Utah and, and had a great opportunity to go to Utah in the first, you know, first year or so that I worked with the agency and was involved in the trap and transplant to release moose on the Grand Mesa in Colorado. So, you know, and that's all funded by sportsman's dollars. There would not be right. moose in Colorado without the work of, of the sportsman of the state, the sportsmen, sportswomen of the state, um, without those hunting and fishing license fee dollars to, to fund things like moose reintroduction, we wouldn't have that. So, you know, the, the, the people of Colorado owe a, a great debt of gratitude to the people that hunt um, because it does, it supports wildlife populations that people just love to even just go see. Um, yeah. People love yeah, how many people go. They're, they're amazing. Critters. How, how many go to Maroon Bells hoping to see a moose? <laughs> That's one of those big, big areas to go hopefully see a moose. And I got a kind of a cool little moose story. I, I was out shed hunting last a couple of years ago and found a dead moose that had, I smelled it first and it was a cow moose and it had a radio collar on it and ear tags. And I plugged my nose and, removed it, called the wildlife biologist. And she said, yeah, you can keep it, but give me the numbers off of that. And so she got the data she needed and sent me the map of where all that moose had been. That was some cool data. I thought that was some, some neat stuff. And that same biologist had told me, and I thought this, I think this relates to what you said just a little bit ago about how we don't know is studying the moose and she and step Durno, I believe her name was, she had done a lot of research on moose and she's no longer with the agency, but still working with them a little bit. And she had said how, well, we know moose eat willow. And so on the Mesa, they did a study around calculating the area, how much willow we have. Cause that's 
that'll help figure out carrying capacity. Well, they later found out that, oh man, they eat oak brush <laughs> and here they are eating oak brush. Well, how much oak brush do we have? It's everywhere. So what's our carrying capacity? Oh man, it's a lot more than what we thought. <laughs> a lot more than what we thought it could ever be. So that's maybe one of those contributing factors to our growing moose population and another one of those total unknowns because they're here in Colorado versus Wyoming or wherever. So kind of a cool, cool little thing that, that, uh, like you said, I think we can be proud of, uh, to, as a state, because we got such a, a unique growing population of moose. Absolutely. But we, uh, we've been chatting for quite a while and, and that kind of wraps up Dale, all my questions. Again, I said this with Lyle the other day, how enlightening that was, but I think there's quite a bit here that is again, very enlightening on the subject of licensing, whether we focused on Northwest region or not, there's a lot of stuff here statewide to, to give us an understanding of CPWs goals and and purpose for doing what they what you guys do so appreciate what you do for wildlife and what you do for people and sportsmen and allowing and helping to create opportunity create some good quality opportunities and that sort of thing so we we appreciate that because uh, like teachers uh, cpw employees are probably underthanked <laughs> and uh we well i, I appreciate so I, uh, you know we appreciate the podcast. So thank you. And, and, and thank you for the thoughts too. I mean, there's a good opportunity to tell people about what we're up to. And if people have questions, you know, we're, we're human. We're not all going to agree. I, I had a guy, you know, yelling at me last night about a, an issue, but we're darn well going to, going to talk. And we're pretty good at that at Colorado parks and wildlife about saying, Hey, here's, here's why we did what we did. Um, and, and so if you have questions, anybody out there listening, give us a call. Uh, we'll, we'll try and answer your questions or point you to a person that can. Right. I just got an email back from, I just did the general ask a question on CPW's page. I've called individual uh, officers and talked to biologists and definitely takes a collective to, or, or of CPW employees and finding the correct one. And, and you can, yeah. Uh, what I have found out is that each and every one of them willing to talk, willing to ask or ask, answer a question or ask another question <laughs> to get my answer and do something like that. So that's been, been a good experience for me with, with my uh, reaching out and relationship with CPW. So, well, Randy, I want to let you go, get back to your day. And I appreciate you again coming on and speaking to the hunters in Colorado. Excellent. Thank you for having us, Clint. Appreciate it. Right outside of this one church town, there's a gold dirt road to a whole lot of nothing. Got a deed to the land, but it ain't my ground. This is God's country.